This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 20. Now basically the last time we saw David being reunited to his rightful throne after the uh, rebellion of, of Absalom. And tonight we're going to look at the civil strife that seems to be, have been brewing for a while in the nation of Israel and certainly the destruction from the uh, rebellious attitude of Absalom and what it did to the nation didn't help any. And I want to touch on something that I spoke a little bit about on Sunday and then really apply it to Wednesday night. So Sunday I talked about how we study the Bible, observation, interpretation, application. And when we speak about Jesus, we interpret, we know what God is conveying to us through what Jesus did, but the application, obviously, we're not Jesus. However, we want to be like him. So as we observe and interpret what Jesus did, the application is how, how do we emulate that in our own lives? So this evening, and I, we've been doing this for a few chapters. None of us that I know here is a king or a queen of a sovereign nation. If you are, talk to me afterwards, but I know most of you. However, as we look at David and we look at his kingdom and his rulership over the kingdom, obviously we can interpret what God is saying to us through the word. We can see what's going on, but when we apply it to our lives, not being in that position, we can still emulate leadership characteristics. As Christians, uh, God has naturally ingrained us through his spirit to have leadership properties. So we can see through what happens here, and unfortunately for David, but fortunately for us, we can see what he did was good, and when we see how he made mistakes, what he's good we should emulate, and what mistakes he made we should probably not repeat. So we can emulate leadership characteristics, good ones, and we can also identify problems. And we'll look at that as we go through this. So that's where I believe the application phase comes in. How does this apply to me? Well, leadership characteristics. You know, in our small sphere of influence, we might even have leadership qualities over our own peers and our own family. So how do, we, how do we act in that role? So jumping into verse 1, it says, And there happened to be a rebel, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bishri, a Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel departed David and followed Sheba, the son of Bishri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. So we look at this, and it said there happened to be a rebel. Unfortunately for David, he had his fair share of rebels, uh, and a few of them were in his own family. And leadership always attracts rebels, right? A, a, a parasite always has to have a host. And a faithful maxim would be that rebels can't exist in a vacuum. They need to have leaders so that they can, they can attack, and they can try to take down, and they can try to take that position. Now, it's very interesting in our society, uh, we're becoming, I believe, I mean, it's kind of cool and fashionable in society to emulate and look at rebels when we really should be looking at godly leaders. Uh, there's an interesting court case that just happened in New Jersey, and a lot of people were holding their breath. A young lady who's just turned 18, and um, there was a, a disagreement between her and her parents, and you know, everyone decided it was best for her to move out. So she sued her parents for college funds and a whole bunch of other things, and uh, the judge actually happened in New Jersey. He actually struck down her request. Now, the court case isn't over. It can still be appealed, but the judge was concerned that if this was to go forward, that every parent would be held hostage by their teenage or young adult children. Basically, they could do what they want in the house, and the courts will give them the ability for their parents to have to pay for everything. 
Uh, so it was a very interesting court decision. Again, our society looks at rebellious behavior like it's a cool thing. 1 Samuel 15, though, tells us otherwise. It says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And we don't see it like that in American culture. The funny thing about rebels is when they have the position that they're looking for, they usually have a disdain for anyone else who's a rebel and might take that position. So now all of a sudden they start to change how they view things. So Sheba, he appeals to the northern tribes. Sheba is a male, by the way. And he preys on their feelings of being left out. And it was this thing in Israel. And not unlike many countries and maybe countries with states where it's the north versus the south. There were the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. And, you know, sometimes the tribes in the north felt they were a little bit left out. So Sheba, instead of fostering peace, another mark of a rebel, instead of fostering peace, he continued to get people roused up. Instead of healing the nation after this horrible thing with Absalom, he was, he was being a rabble-rouser. Not a good thing. You know, Satan is the ultimate rebel leader in that he preys on the subjective feelings of people instead of leading them to the truth. He's the opposite. So the ten tribes desert David and throw in their lot with Sheba. Remember, love David or hate him, this wasn't a popularity contest. Not only was David the king, but he was also anointed by God, and everybody knew that. And they still were rebelling against him, and rebelling against him in that position was really rebelling against God. And what I found interesting as well is if you remember David before he was the king, Saul was the king, and Saul was a horrible leader. David, as as a young man, was anointed. God told him he would be the king. But David would not rebel against Saul. He would not lift a hand against him. He would not even say anything negative about Saul. He was waiting for God to do his, in his perfect timing, to remove Saul so that David could could go in there. But David wasn't going to do it on his own. I respect that about him. Verse 3, it says, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. He didn't have relations with them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. These were the women when David vacated Jerusalem that were left behind. Then Absalom came in, and he went in and had sexual relations with the women to assert his dominance and really to burn a bridge uh, against his father. And this was a thing, unfortunately, that they did back in those days, and it had a lot of significance to it. So David comes back. You can see he's a lot of housekeeping. He's putting things in order. Some people believe that David put them into seclusion because those women reminded him of Absalom. I don't agree with that, though. And, you know, there are going to be times where there's conjecture. We can have this conjecture in the Scripture where the Bible is not clear on a specific instance. I believe, my personal opinion, is that David showed them mercy. I believe that he allowed them to live the rest of his day, their days, um, you know, supported and taken care of, that he wasn't going to have these sexual relations with them. That's my personal opinion. He was helping them in their recovery because, unfortunately, at the time, they were under an abusive, narcissistic, uh, self-aggrandizing leader and probably, you know, they were traumatized at some point. So I think that this is an act of David's mercy. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. So David is concerned about this Sheba rising up 
blowing the trumpet, assembling the northern tribes to his side. And unfortunately, David has to go to war again. Again, like what I said in the beginning, we're not kings, we're not monarchs. Um, Hopefully, none of us ever have to go to physical war. But in a spiritual sense, we're always at war. Satan never takes a rest. If you're a believer and you're serving God, he's never going to leave you alone. We can always have, I know God is much more powerful. We can always be in prayer and we can ask God to strengthen us and to fill us with his Holy Spirit. But in a sense, David was in physical war, but we are also in spiritual war. Now, as believers, it doesn't mean that we have these personal wars that we fight, but there's always going to be this undercurrent of spiritual warfare that's going to go on in our lives if we're following God and serving him. Jesus spoke about what I would call the proverbial target on the disciples' back. He said, when you take my message, when you take God's message and you go out, the world, you're going to get resistance. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be trials because the rebellious world doesn't want to hear the message of God and salvation. Um, At times we may even say, and and we might sense an oppression and say, I just want peace. I mean, how many of us have said that? You're going through a trial, you're going through a difficulty, you say, just want peace. However, we can't always make decisions that are motivated about just wanting peace. Remember, the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy, the pastor, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal things. He didn't say, Timothy, beat up the people in your congregation that don't agree with you. He said, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal things. And that was going to get him grief. And he expressed that to young Timothy. Timothy, first and second Timothy are awesome letters. There's a famous saying from Edmund Burke that says, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. You ever wonder how American culture degraded so much? Didn't we start off with good principles, Judeo-Christian values? And now look at our country. All you have to do is read the paper. Forget about what's going on overseas. This stuff happened in here. Because the watchmen at the wall have been asleep for decades. And evil has not stopped. And it's not stopped to try to take down what we try to establish in this country. We've made our mistakes. We've had our sins. And we've tried to rectify those sins. We've tried to be an example to other countries. But our, our, our culture is, is nothing to be proud of at this point. But in the monarchy, allowing this type of behavior to occur would cause another bloody civil war. And the goal was to spare the people who just went through this even more pain and suffering. Now, I just want to give you kind of a caveat here. There's obviously some leadership that's, that's clearly evil. I think of North Korea, King Jong-un. And we know some of what's been reported, but there's a lot of stuff that they're trying to hide in that kingdom. Cannibalism and starvation and abuse of the people. This young leader goes on drunk tirades and starts executing people, even in his own family, of his paranoia. Right? The more wicked a leader is, the more paranoid they're going to become and the more evil they will foment. And that's that's a sad thing that we have to see. And and it's, it's bad. It's not just the Christians that he's doing it to. It's average citizens. It's not good. Verse 6, and David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Bishri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So David reveals his heart on the matter when it comes to Sheba. Here we go again. This could be a real problem, and it could be more damaging because Absalom had garnered a lot of support from the southern kingdom, But uh, uh, Sheba 
was starting to gather support from the populous northern kingdoms. This could have been a real bloodbath if he did nothing. Okay, so he had to do something. Probably if there was a journalist back then and they gave David the microphone and said, So King David, how do you feel about this? He might have said, I'm tired. I'm not getting any younger. Sometimes this is a thankless position. Remember, David fled Jerusalem. He left. He fled his son, Absalom, because I know he didn't want to fight his son, but he also was trying to spare that, that land from a bloodbath. He, he chose to leave in humility to spare more lives being killed between those loyal to him and those loyal to Absalom. But here, David realizes he has to take a, a preemptive position here because this could get out of hand really fast especially if Sheba ends up in a walled city, which he ends up doing. David had to be ruthless with Sheba. You can almost look at Sheba as a type of sin. And we have to be ruthless with that in our lives too. You know, if you look at Genesis and you look at God speaking to Cain, he told him to deal with his anger. He told him to deal with his sin. He said, it's just waiting at the door to take over you. And just after that conversation that Cain had with God, he went and killed his brother. It's like, what did he take from that conversation? But God had to, he had to make sure it was important that Cain understood that sin was, was going to try to destroy him and his family. And unfortunately, Cain succumbed to it. Now, this is interesting because initially Amasa is sent to gather up the troops. However, Amasa is taking a little bit longer than normal. Maybe David's concerned. Well, what happened to Amasa? You know, where did he go? Oh, did he defect? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So now he sends Abishai, not Joab. He sends Abishai. He goes, well, you, you know, you do this. We got we to pursue Sheba. So this becomes a problem, as we'll see. Verse 7. So Joab's men, with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, this Joab was just, he was a natural leader, but he wasn't a good guy. And in the next few chapters, we're going to see he even turns on David. So he has natural leadership qualities and abilities, but he doesn't do it in the strength of the Lord. He does it in his own strength, and he gets away with it for a while. And when we do things in our own strength, we'll get away with it for a while too. But eventually it's going to come back to hurt us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, all the mighty men, these were the elites, they went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bishri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in good health? Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bishri. Now this is interesting. Remember that Joab was not happy when he was demoted in a sense, and Amasa was put as the head. He was the general now, and Joab had to kind of take a back seat to Amasa. We found this in the previous chapters. So, you know, Abishai is sent to deal with Sheba. However, Joab immediately takes over. He kind of pushes his brother aside, and he gets his mighty men, his troops together, a natural leader. Everybody acquiesces to Joab. So now Joab meets Amasa. Amasa actually did what he was asked to do. It just took him a little while to do it. 
So Joab goes up to Amasa, general to general, both fighters, right? Both skilled in, in warfare. I call this the sword trick. And what it seems is, is Joab purposely had this dagger loosely in its sheath, and he kind of pretends clumsily to go to Amasa, oh, my, my, my dagger fell out on the ground. So disarming, not physically, but mentally, Amasa, and then he goes to grab him by the beard. Now, this was a custom back in the Middle East. You know, they would grow these beards. So if you were uh, friendly with somebody, kind of like we hug each other as Christians, you, you would grab your brother's beard and give him a kiss. However, Joab had another dagger, and when he grabbed Amasa by the beard to disarm him and also the, the sword falling out, what Amasa didn't know is he had another dagger, and he stabbed him in the stomach and cut his stomach open in one shot, and all of his guts fell out. That's pretty nasty, right? I think Joab is, he's just, you know, every time he, he's accomplished in the world, it just feeds his own power, his own de- insatiable desire for power. It's really sad. So he's a missions-oriented guy. However, he's an ends-justify-the-means type of guy as well, which is not a godly quality. Joab gets the, the job done, but at what cost? How many times has Joab gotten the job done, but he's literally gotten away with murder? And listen... Hopefully we don't have friends like Joab that cuts people's guts open. But think about this on our level. Do we have people in our lives like Joab? They get the job done. They do what we need. They may minister to us in some way. We have a sense of loyalty to them. Maybe misplaced loyalty. But they're wholly ungodly people. But we keep them close to us, and we shouldn't, because they're get-the-job-done type of people. You think that God was happy about this? I don't think so. Here's the question, brothers and sisters. What about when your Joab and my Joab turns on you? Right? So when we have people like that in our lives, what's to, you know, listen, it's happened to me, and, and I learned my lessons from that. What happens when, they, when they're doing for you and getting the job done, and you feel safe with them, and then they turn around and they turn the sword on you? And that's what Joab does to David. I mean, not literally, but we'll see that later on. Verse 11. You know, at first I always thought Joab was kind of cool until I read the rest of the scripture. You know, I really, oh, this guy's pretty bad. Verse 11. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Very, very important and very, very destructive. Now, the men that are watching this think, well, Joab is under David's auspices. And he even says it. Do you follow David and Joab? David didn't send him out. He sent out Abishai. And before that, he sent out Amasa. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, like an animal that got run over. That was my ad in addition. But it's sad. And when the men saw that the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bishri. So poor Amasa is treated worse than an animal, pushed off the side of the highway, a garment's thrown over him. Why? Because of the shock value. Remember, the troops are looking at this, and and they're they're a little bit in shock. So what do they do? Well, they've got to take the shock value out, get the guy, push him off to the side of the road, and throw something over him under David's auspices. Pretty sick, isn't it? What does everybody do? They follow Joab. Kind of like herd mentality. That's how the, uh, the Nazis came to power, by the way. 
They were get-the-job-done type of people. Germany was in, in disarray financially in other ways, and they made a lot of promises, and they showed strength. People followed them. And then once they were in power, they couldn't get them out. Amasa delayed, yes, but there was no good reason why he should have been killed. He did what he was told to do. He mustered the army. It just took him a little while to do it. And I've got to tell you, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful, too, that we don't have herd mentality. And, and I've seen Christians do this. They'll, they'll shift their loyalty to the majority. They'll go with a personality. They'll go with who seems on top at the time, who makes a persuasive argument. Uh, somebody that does for them, does things for them, instead of following Scripture. And we're not called to be blind sheep. Verse 14. And when he went through the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Mechah and all the Beerites, so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Mechah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city. And it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. You know, some of these, these things, if they actually made movies, they'd probably be very exciting. So what's his name? Sheba, the, uh, the rebel, he ends up in this walled city, probably convinces the people to, you know, close the doors, close the walls, cordon it off. And Joab finds that he's here, so he has to employ what's called siege warfare, which goes back many thousands of years. It's an ancient, you had a walled city, I did my siege ramp. And basically you would put debris or they would have, um, the Romans actually had some very interesting wheeled units that would go up to the wall and the men would go climb up it and they would have shields on the outside and they put up their own wall basically and they had to, they would use a battering ram to try to knock the wall down or at least breach the wall over the top. So this is what's going on, siege warfare. Just so you know, if siege warfare went on for a while, a lot of people would die those besieging the city and those within the city. Actually, that happened, uh, well, it was one-sided victory at Masada with the Romans, but that's another story. So Joab, he's ready to rock. He's ready to rock and roll. He's ready to go in there. Again, no, no doubt in his abilities, he's done it many times before, he's going to go and he's going to get Sheba. However, Joab was very calculated. And certainly if he was victorious which he is, um, it still further insulates him from his crimes. And Job always counted on that, his natural ability to get the job done, so he would kill, um, there was a few people killed uh, that he had killed over the years. He killed Absalom, he killed somebody before that. Now he kills Amasa and three murders, and uh, he's still going. He's still on David's team. Verse 16. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please, say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. And she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel, which was that city. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bishri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. 
And the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bishri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So a woman cries out from within the city. She wants to speak to Joab. Indeed, she was wise because she presented a massacre. Again, picture the scene. It's very tense. All it has to do is Joab has to say the word, take it down, anybody in the way, take them out, find Sheba and, and deal with him. However, this woman comes up and she averts something that could have been horrific. How many could have been killed in the siege? Nobody knows. How many people were in the city? How many of Job's forces were there? How many of the forces would have been killed before they actually breached the city? But the woman talks peaceable. She says, there are, there are us, there are peaceable within the city. It used to be said we had a reputation of, you know, of being wise and settling problems. So she's appealing to Joab and he listens to her. And I find it interesting that peaceable people came to kill a man but for what reason? To prevent further bloodshed. How many of you heard in, um, again, I just, I'm just a World War II buff. How many of you ever heard of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that Germany had with Russia? So the Russians come westward, right? And the Germans came eastward. They both met in Poland in the center. They were just tra- uh, conquering everybody in, in the way. The Russians under Stalin and the Germans under Hitler met right in the middle. They stopped fighting, and for a while, they had peace while they conquered everybody else. However, the two men, Stalin and Hitler, were responsible for tens, if not hundreds of millions of deaths in World War II. Imagine if somebody dealt with, and actually, there were actually many assassination attempts on Hitler's life. If you ever read German history, they just weren't, um, they weren't successful. Imagine in the early days, if they would have taken out these two men, how many lives could have been spared? That's just the way I look at it. You know, as believers, we may hopefully never be put in this position. Um, none of us probably ever will. However, like this woman, sometimes we have to stick our necks out for what's right. right? She did it. She ran the risk of Joab just smiting her if he didn't like what she had to say. He had absolute authority and absolute power. She didn't say, well, it's not my problem, it's not my fight. She stuck her neck out for the safety and security of all the people within that city. Many, maybe, maybe many of them were strangers to her. Maybe some of them she didn't like, but she also stepped up. And as believers, there's going to be times where we step up, and it could mean our reputation. It could mean being maligned. It could mean a lot of things, but we do it because it's right. At the end of the day, because of this one wise woman, we don't even know her name. One wise woman, she spared many deaths. And it ends another one of the rebels' pursuits, Sheba's. I don't understand, I guess, well, I, I should reverse that. I've been in a position to be rebellious, and it's never really worked out well. And, uh, you know, now that the Lord has brought me into this position, I have to tell you something. It's tough enough to lead when you have the Lord's backing. So I don't understand how people 
try to lead or try to rebel or try to get something when the Lord's not with them. I really think it's deception. Like those of you know, if you're, you know, Arnie's over there in the prisons, we have ministry leaders here, youth leaders. You know, when you have the Lord's backing, it's still, is it easy? Please tell me, anybody here think it's super easy? Look at Bill shaking his head in the children's ministry. No, it's not. It isn't. But there are some that just want, all they see is their own popularity. They only see their own self-aggrandizement. And and all they see is that position. Um, I, I, quite frankly, I don't want to go anywhere unless the Lord is with me. Because it's only going to end in disaster. Verse 23. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jerite was a chief minister under David. So Joab is over all the army again. How did he get there? By treachery and by covering his tracks. Two major points I want to make here. Number one is that two types that we can have to have our back. Listen, everybody wants allies. Everybody wants support, encouragement, help. We can either go with God to fight our battles and make our decisions, or we can go with Joab's. And there's benefits, pluses and minuses of both. Think about it. The benefit of a Joab is they usually do it right away, and God takes his time. But his time is perfect. The detriment is that Joab's do it with treachery, but God does it in righteousness. Right? Plus and minuses of both. If we allow God to deal with us and deal with our trials, it may not come out exactly the way we want it, but it will be perfect. And maybe we won't see that for years down the road looking back. And again, what about when the Joabs turn on us? If we allow the Joabs in our lives to do it, we will suffer the consequences, and there always are consequences. Now, the second thing to look at here is David had both physical and spiritual battles. He was fighting both. He was literally fighting at times for his life and his survival physically, but he also had spiritual battles. They never seemed to end. And again, nobody I, I know looking around, is, I don't see any of you as monarchs, um, ruling class, but so then our battles will primarily be spiritual battles. And if we're doing God's will, we will be fighting principalities. And we're going to need God for that because we can't do it on our own. In closing, I actually want to encourage you with these words. David was not a young man. For a king, and in those days, uh, as we start to look at the years of David's life, he was getting there. He was getting up there. He was still involved in wars, probably maybe looking to retire somewhere in a place by the shore, but he couldn't, right? He still had to be concerned for the health and the safety of the nation of Israel. And God didn't release him from his position yet. David had conflict until the end of his life. Now, some of it was because of his own sin. We know the sword didn't depart from inside his family, right? But some of it was just because he stepped up to serve the Lord. We could go our whole lives and make it easy. We could live for our flesh. We could avoid conflict, peace at any cost. Or we could be rebellious but never stepping up to a position where where the decision stops with us and we're responsible for those decisions. Or we could step up and serve God 
and have a legacy like David of someone who had a heart for God. If you ask many Christians, who is Sheba? Probably most Christians wouldn't know. What did Sheba do? I have no idea. Who is Absalom? Um, That name sounds familiar because was it Rush that sang a song years ago and they said, Absalom, Absalom? I remember that in my past, right? But they probably can't tell you much more than that. On the contrary, everyone knows David. Even unbelievers, you ask them, who is King David? They'll tell you something. I would rather have the legacy of a sinner, because I am, (laughs) a sinner who was victorious because God was with me than have any of the legacies that Absalom or Sheba or Joab left. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.